Welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and we're now going to start part two of my interview with Loretta Ross. So welcome back, Loretta. Hi. Um, okay, what I would love for you to unpack for me and for us is uh, the notion, the concepts around reproductive justice, and also almost, you know, what is reproductive oppression, and then we'll move into what Sister Song does in relation to those two concepts. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I probably have to do a little step back into please, history to explain please. reproductive justice. Yeah. In 1994, I was one of 12 black women who were at a conference in Chicago, organized by the Ms. Foundation and the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance. Okay. And what was happening in 1994 was that Hillary Clinton was leading President Clinton's effort to do health care reform. I remember that. And one of the things that the administration thought was going to work was that if they downplayed reproductive health care, in health care reform, they could somehow slide it past the Republican opposition. <laughs> and this felt like a very bizarre strategy to the 12 black women who were hearing mm -hmm. about this at the Chicago conference. Mm -hmm. And so we met in a room, caucus, so to speak, and said, this doesn't work for us because most of the time what drives women to the doctor is reproductive health care, sure. particularly in the African-American community. I mean, after menstruation, your second on becoming a woman experience is the stirrups. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. how in the world can you talk about health care without reproductive health care? And we didn't really trust that the administration was going to faint to the right and then move to the left yeah. after the policy got passed. Yeah. And so we decided that we were going to give a response. And we decided that our strategy, our tactic would be to purchase a full page ad in the Washington Post hmm. and say, no, you shall not leave out reproductive health care, Mr. Administration. Wow. And we didn't know what to call ourselves because the 12 women were from all different organizations. At the time, I was doing anti-Klan work, as a matter of fact, wow. with the Center for Democratic Renewal. There were people from Planned Parenthood, the National Black Women's Health Project, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, the Chicago Abortion Fund, uh, National Council of Negro Women. I mean, we were from all mm -hmm. over the place. Mm -hmm. And so we needed a name to call our temporary alliance. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that happened in our conversation is that we criticized the way abortion was always isolated from other social justice mm. issues. It was exceptionalized mm -hmm. as if it was not health care for women. Mm -hmm. And but we're talking about, oh, before a woman even makes a decision whether or not to have an abortion, she has to decide, can I continue this pregnancy and keep my job? Right. Can I continue my education? Will my partner get violent if I tell him? You know, sure. all of these other things, social justice issues, affect and actually determine mm. whether a woman is ready to continue a pregnancy or not. Yeah. So isolating abortion from all of those social justice issues did not make sense to us. Mm -hmm. 
And so in that hotel room, thinking about this ad, we spliced together the concept of reproductive rights and social justice, and we created the term reproductive justice, talking about embedding reproductive rights in a social justice framework. Wonderful. So within six weeks, we raised $40,000. We put the ad in the Washington Post. Did it we, cost that much? Huh? Did it cost Oh, 40? yeah, and that okay. was what, 21 wow. years ago, wow. right? Um, but we didn't call ourselves in the post women of African descent for reproductive justice because upon advice, we were told call ourselves black women for healthcare reform mm. because then the ad would speak very clearly to what we were doing. And we got 836 African-American women to sign on to the ad, including Angela Davis yeah. and novelist Alice Walker and supermodel uh, Veronica Webb. We were so excited because wow. this was about the power of black women to impact public policy. Yeah. And so we created the term reproductive justice and offered it as a gift to the world. Yeah. And then when Sister Song was founded in 1997, mm -hmm. uh, it became our organizing call. Mm -hmm. And when we had our first national conference in 2003, we, we, we debuted it for the world, that, yeah. that reproductive justice is what we seek to organize around. And by then, we had populated it with the global human rights framework. Right. And so we tend to say, Reproductive justice is a way of applying human rights to yeah. women in the United States. Yeah. Now, a lot of people ask, well, what does reproductive justice actually mean, Loretta? Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you say pro-choice, people are pretty clear. So reproductive justice is a bit more amorphous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we had to break it down for them. We joined with the pro-choice movement in fighting for the right not to have children, mm -hmm. and that is to use birth control, abortion or abstinence, mm -hmm. if you can hang on. Mm -hmm. They say it works. <laughs> I don't know, but they say, I don't abstain from anything. But anyway, so we joined with the pro-choice movement around not having a child. But we come from communities of color where the right to have children mm -hmm. is deeply contested by strategies of population control. Mm -hmm. And so as women of color in general, and black women in particular, we have to fight for the right to have the children we want to have and under the conditions when, under which we want to have them, which is like using a midwife, for example. And then, as you can see with the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. we have to fight for the right to raise our children yeah. Yeah. in safe and healthy environments, you know, without threat of police violence or bad schools or en environmental toxins and all of these things. So reproductive justice is really three tenets, the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, the right to parent your children. Wow. It's, it's really simple to embrace, sure. but it's a serious paradigm shift because when you talk about what is necessary to have a healthy family, mm -hmm. to raise your children with, right. without fear of violence or, or a bad environment or those kinds of things. Sure. Then you're talking about the necessary enabling social conditions that make your choices possible. Right. So you've moved beyond a privacy me, me, me mm -hmm. framework mm -hmm. into a we, we, we framework yeah. wow. because we all, all human beings sure. deserve these things. Yeah. And so as a result, reproductive justice is also talking about sexual freedom and gender autonomy and gender freedom and a whole lot of other mm -hmm. things that just talking about abortion as a sure. pro-choice, pro-life 
discussion simply didn't address. A lot of people mistakenly thought that we created reproductive justice to counter pro-choice, which is absolutely Mm. wrong. Um, Because for us to have done that, we would have had to have white women in the center of our lens. Because that was the framework that white women used. But we put ourselves in the center of the lens. And that's how we came up with reproductive justice, because we thought about, well, what do we need as African-American women? What do our communities need? What do our children need? And so it is accidental that it pushes the pro-choice boundary, but it wasn't by design. But Sister Song, I was reading that also you work with pro-life folks. Well, Sister Song, well, first let me tell you about Sister Song. In 1997, 16 women of color organizations got together and decided that we could be stronger together. Mm -hmm. And some of us were pro-choice, some of us were pro-life, and we didn't make any division amongst ourselves because what we all did was work in our communities, which is Native American, African American, Latina, and Asian Pacific Islander. Mm -hmm. We worked in our communities on reproductive health and rights issues. And so we never actually had a struggle around the abortion okay. debate that, that happens That's in amazing. other communities. It, yeah. wasn't a, it was a non-issue for us yeah. because we knew we had so much more in common than we had dividing right. us. I mean, sure. we, 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 at our first meetings, we used to talk about, okay, are we gonna debate abortion? abortion? And then somebody said, no, because I want to debate whether to have a baby in the hospital versus have one at home. Yeah. I mean, we, right. that was the kind of the level of discussion that we yeah. were having. And so yeah. we kind of, so wow. our name even says it. Sister Song was a name given to us by one of our founders, Juanita Williams, because we were sitting around our planning meeting talking about how we didn't have any money, how we didn't have any staff, but half the organizations didn't even own computers or copiers or fax machines yeah. or cell phones. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of anything. We were just community women trying to do the work. Right. And Juanita observed, she said, we're all singing the same song, but just mm. on in our own little keys. She said, if we could learn to sing our songs together, we'd make beautiful harmony. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's the name Sister, Sister song. song. That's how it was born. That's it was not crazy. about singing the same song. No. It was about singing our own songs in harmony with each other. That's so we friend. never put any pressure on each other. Well, if you're pro-life, you must agree here. If mm-hmm. you're pro-choice, you must agree here. If you're into home births, you must agree here. I, I mean, the, 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 the discussion that most blew my mind was people talking about having orgasms while having babies. And I was like, there's easier ways to get off, people. (laughs) (laughs) But this was Sister Song. Wow, that's amazing. And then did Sister Song come up with the human rights piece, the human rights rights document, or did that precede it? That preceded it, because we went to, I was one of the women who went to the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, Egypt in 1994 the same year we created the Reproductive Justice Framework. And so when I came home, I was the one saying, everything we were talking about in Chicago is actually a human rights issue. It's not just a social justice issue. And so uh, when I was invited into the Sister Song Collective to become one of those 16 organizations, I didn't even work at a women's rights organization. I was running the National Center for Human Rights Education. And my job was to teach the other 15 members how to use the human rights framework. And so 
It was in our DNA that Sister Song would be a human rights-based right. organization talking about reproductive justice. And, and can you unpack a little bit, like, it's an old document, the Human Rights Declaration. The um, Universal Declaration, Declaration of Human Rights. And I love that each, each whereas is that a person is born, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I love the fact that when a First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, put yeah. together the committee to write the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1946 to 1948, they opened up this beautiful document mm -hmm. by saying each human, every human being is born right. equal in rights and dignity. Right. So there was a common sense recognition that you have to be here to claim the rights, yeah. which thwarts those people that try to claim human yes. rights for the pre-born right. and all of that. Right, right, but that's right. a whole nother discussion. Sure. But what but I... clarify it, though, in a very clean way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They weren't talking about, mm -mm. you know, the anti-abortion or the pro-choice movement because sure. abortion wasn't even legal at the time. Right. It was just saying that you have to be here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you don't get to violate the human rights of people who are already here for people you want to see in the future. Exactly. <laughs> so... Let's not have that happen. Yeah. But I yeah. also love the way that they define very clear categories for human rights protections to which we're all entitled, but they're still somewhat porous. They, they mm -hmm. still are interactive with each other. Yeah. I mean, civil rights, the right to be treated as an equal to anybody in society, but that's right. also dependent on political human rights, you know, the r freedom to vote, the freedom to freedom of speech, which is also dependent on economic human rights. Mm -hmm. You know, the right to have an economy managed for the 99% and not the 1%, sure. you know, sure. and on and on. Then there's social human rights, you know, the right to have your needs met, your needs for health care and education and social security and welfare. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are really important human rights. So I was talking about that child who needs her books in braille. Yeah. It's her, education is her human right, and it's sure. our job to make sure she has what she needs to get exactly. one. And then, of course, there are cultural human rights, freedom of religion, right. which is very important. Mm -hmm. We talk about that a lot today, but we also are learning in the women's movement to talk about freedom from religion. Exactly not to have someone else's religion right. imposed upon our bodies, right. which exactly. I think is a really important human right. And then environmental rights, the right to a clean environment, mm. developmental rights, the right to develop our own natural resources, mm. yeah. and of course sexual human rights, which is my favorite, yeah. you know? <laughs> the right to sexual pleasure, the right to determine if and when we'll marry, if and when we'll have mm. kids, and transgender rights, and with whom, right? right. <laughs> transgender rights, same-sex right. rights, those are sexual human rights. Sure. And so when they laid out the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they, they unleashed a philosophy of liberation that is mm -hmm. secular, not religious-based, but okay. is secular that we could all subscribe to. But they also left the door open for us to, to describe new rights. Because yeah. in addition to the first eight categories, I'm convinced that digital rights is going to be the ninth category. Huh the right to participate with information technology, mm -hmm. without which we may not be seen as a fully competent mm -hmm. and deserving human being yeah. in a very short time. So I like the fact that new social movements can demand hu more human rights. human rights. And we're gonna also have to figure out fairly shortly 
how far along we're going to let science start redefining who is human. Right. Wow. With all of this biotechnology sure. and stuff. Sure. But it's a brave new world. I'm, I'm loving fantastic. it. And I have to honestly say, I did not think of this. Dr. Martin Luther King said it in his last Sunday sermon. He said we need to build a human rights movement in this country. Oh he said that gosh. March 31st, 1968. That very sentence. Well, he, he said. He used those words, human rights. He used the words human rights, but he said, in fact, we're in the middle of a triple revolution. Huh. A revolution in weaponry, a revolution mm -hmm. in communication, and a human rights revolution. Wow. And then four days later, he was assassinated. Yeah. So I always felt that. Everybody told me Dr. King had a dream. Nobody told me he had a plan. Yeah. Wow. So that's why I started the human, National Center for Human Rights Education, sure. to teach people what their human rights are. That's amazing. So it was natural that when I intersected that with reproductive social, you know, reproductive yeah. justice, that I was going to pack human yeah. rights all in there, that. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, I want to bring it up to the present. You've spent this last year here at the Five College Women's uh, Studies Program Center, Research Center. And I was looking up some of the workshops that you led, and boy, I wish I would have taken all of them. But one, I hear some of the titles, Appropriate Whiteness, Being an Individual Ally to Women of Color, Empowering Women of Color in Feminist Organizations, and understanding and applying human rights principles in social justice work. So I was wondering if you could synthesize all three of those. <laughs> into <laughs> in, a short description? Into like a short description. And, and also, you, you know, you've told me that you'll be back next year. So I'm wondering, are these things you're going to repeat again? Are these things that are open to the community to participate? Everything I do is open to the community. That's so what I was hoping so you'd that, say. That, that goes without saying. Yeah. Well, appropriate whiteness was born out of my anti-Klan work. Remember, I talked about in 1994, yes. I was doing anti-Klan work. And what I found was that there were thousands of white people who were committed to fighting white supremacy mm -hmm. who didn't know how to do it appropriately. Um, and they were, you know, just roping around trying to figure out how to be, quote, a good ally, right. which is a word I don't use so much mm -hmm. anymore because I like the indigenous people who say, no, we need co-conspirators, okay. <laughs> you know, not That's allies. Yeah. You know, we need somebody who's in it with us, you sure. know, who'll go to jail not with us. There, <laughs> right. allies. Yeah, allies get to check in and check out, co-conspirators. You're going to get blamed for the conspiracy, sure. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and, but I found that people who did, who wanted to resist the organized white supremacist movement really had difficulty figuring out how to do that appropriately. Mm -hmm. They usually did it out of a sense of guilt around mm -hmm. being white, mm -hmm. as if they got to choose their race in the womb. Uh, they would do so by draping themselves and all the, the, the clothes and the, and, 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 the, and the culture of people of color mm -hmm. as if they could subsume or em erase their whiteness or pretend it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. uh, and none of it was making me feel pretty good about mm -hmm. that because I can't successfully partner with people who are doing it out of guilt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah. When you can buy the clothes I can't afford to buy from my own culture, that don't make me feel all warm and fuzzy towards you. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you in question. Who? Why are you coming to me in disguise? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, wow. kind of thing. Sure. And so I started thinking about how we could have healthy conversations about being white and proud without being white, racist and proud. Mm -hmm. How to be? Uh, what are some of the do's and the don'ts of being in collaboration? to fight white supremacy. What lessons can we learn from the women and the men who gave their lives in the past? You know, yeah. the, uh, the Viola Luzos, you know, mm. the Turner Goodman, yeah, you know, the, the Turner Goodman, uh, uh, Cheney, mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. were killed down in sure. Mississippi, you know. Yeah. Th those were people who gave their lives in the right. struggle against white supremacy. What can we learn from them? Right. Um, and so, that started percolating in my brain in the mid-1990s, particularly after the Oklahoma City bombing mm -hmm. in 1995, and started thinking, okay, I know what I'm fighting against, which is white supremacy, but what am I fighting for? Yeah. And that's why the human rights framework became even much more sure. attractive to me and much more in conversation yeah. for me. And so that's what, that was the genesis of the Appropriate Whiteness Workshop okay. and, and having many, many conversations with not only white feminists, but ex-Nazis wow, <laughs> and people really? who had been in the Aryan Nations and in the Ku Klux Klan that I had helped, you know, leave these formations. Really? I so, say more about that. You... Well, I have to honestly say it is not work that I ran towards. <clears throat> my boss, <coughs> or my chair of my uh, board of directors at the Center for Democratic Renewal, mm -hmm. uh, was a man named Reverend C.T. Vivian. And Reverend Vivian had been an aide to Dr. Martin Luther King. And so C.T. came to work one day and told us that we were going to do this work of helping people leave the hate movement. Mm -hmm. And I looked at C.T. like he'd lost his mind, because I was like, CT, you know, I barely have enough resources to help the victims of hate violence. Sure. Now you're talking about we have to be there for some perpetrators? Wow. Yeah. And he literally said, he said, Loretta, when you ask people to give up hate, you have to be there for them when they do. Wow. And I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but he started a revolution in my thinking. Yeah. One that I had touched on before, because when I was at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center, I often questioned, why we had a whole movement that was consigning black men to the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Couldn't we do something else with sure. those perpetrators? Right. We had a group called Prisoners Against Rape wow. that we helped found. That yeah. was a, so bringing into conversation, stopping, dividing the world into angels and devils. Exactly. The people who had their rights violated versus the people who did the violation. Yeah. And realizing that we're all victimized violators. Right. We're all capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. And so, Appropriate Whiteness is one of those workshops. Um, mm. All of those workshops are yeah. born out of my belief that we can all be better together. And I'm not talking about in some little colorblind, let me forget who you are and right. pretend that, right. you know, your markers don't matter, because markers yeah. are used in a very lethal way in our society. Yeah, yeah but to understand yeah. that they can strengthen our movement rather mm. than weaken them. 
wonderful. Wow. So are you writing now, what, just briefly, because we don't have much time? I'm in a number of writing projects. My opus is this book called Black Abortion, The History of African American Women Fighting for okay. Reproductive Freedom. Yeah. But I'm also writing what I call reproductive justice theory right Wonderful. now, which is looking at all the black feminist antecedents to reproductive yeah. justice, because it didn't just spring out of our brain, sure. you know, like Athena. I mean, you know, it fantastic. was built on something, and so I'm doing a lot of writing on that. And I'm writing a textbook on reproductive justice along with a woman named Ricky Sollinger Wonderful. for college students. Yeah, that's just fantastic. Um, well, next year, your, your workshops, your lectures will be somehow accessible through the five college Absolutely. calendar probably Absolutely. and we can look for Loretta Ross's work I'm I'm gonna show up at some of those because I really want to learn more from from you all right well you'll hear the same old cliches over and over again so okay, well, try to hide your yawns as you do it <laughs> maybe they'll thrum in <laughs> wonderful and uh, I think we're gonna call it a day well, thank you for so, having me on your show. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate both your availability and also getting to know you. It's really been great. And I also want to thank Amherst Media and these wonderful interns that man and woman the cameras. And also I'd like to thank the supporters of Amherst Media whose contributions help us do what we do here. So until next time, thank you for joining us and going deeper. Bye-bye.